Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Fine Woodworking Executive Art Director Mike Pekovich. Hey, guys. And Senior Editor Matt Kenny. Howdy. Now, as always, at the top of every show, I'd like to ask folks to spread the word about this podcast to their fellow woodworkers. Stop by our iTunes page and leave a comment, maybe a nice five-star rating. You can even head over to iHeartRadio, find our page there. Just go to iHeart.com slash talk slash show slash shop talk live with hyphens. Or just go and use their little search engine and just type shop talk live. That would probably be the easiest thing to do. But speaking of listeners, Matt. Yes. uh, You recently had uh, the privilege of meeting one of our six listeners. Right, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Oddly, he had six different connections to the Internet. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I went down to visit family in the South over uh, Christmas break or after Christmas. and uh, Any good dueling down there this year? Yes, I did have to get involved in a few duels. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but I, uh, So I was in Charlotte, so I drove down to Camden, South Carolina, to visit my old uh, mentor, uh, Joe Mazurik. And uh, so I show up at Joe's shop on a Sunday morning, uh, you know, not too early, about you, 11 wait a o'clock. What? His, his name is really Joe Mazurik? Yeah. I have a cousin who's married to a Joe Mazurik in Rahway, New Jersey. Uh, it's not the same guy. No. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> it's like wow, that's a small world. Um, so I went to see Joe, and I go into the shop, and there's this younger man there that I've never seen before, and I'm like, oh no, what's going on? So it turns out it's a, a guy named uh, Robbery. Yeah, it was a robbery. No, a guy named Michael Davis, who lives in the in the beautiful hamlet of Elgin, South Carolina, uh, and Michael loves the podcast. And he loves the magazine, too. He wasn't lying? No, he wasn't. <laughs> In fact, yeah, uh, yeah. They, he asked me to sign uh, some some uh, copies of the magazine for him. Really? Yeah. Wow. It was embarrassing. But, yeah. Matt, your first autograph. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that's not, but it's always embarrassing yeah, when someone asks you to so sign something. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. The only person that I've ever heard that ever gets like stopped in airports that has any association with us is Chris Bexford because he's so – I think Chris is pretty recognizable. Yeah. You can't miss this. Well, six and he's half been foot. in the magazine for 20-some-odd years. Yeah. And you can't miss the six-and-a-half-foot-tall shaker going through the airport. Right. Yeah. Um, well, cool. So uh, what, did, uh, what did Mr. Davis have to say about the podcast? Oh, Anything he, interesting? He, he said it was very organized. Uh, <laughs> oh, that, this is now you're now you're refuting one of the comments that people will be hearing about at the end of the show. Very yeah. organized. Okay. No, he said it, he said he enjoyed it. Yeah. He, he said it was very informative uh, and funny, and he was not at all bothered by our uh, sort of goofy hmm. demeanors, goofy banter. Mm-hmm. Right. Which what kind of woodworking does he do? Uh, you know, none of which is forced, by the way. Our goofy banter is not forced. I'm just putting that out there. Right. Uh, You'll hear more about that at the end. So the one thing I remember distinctly that he talked about, he was about to make himself a Rubo workbench. Yeah. And the top of it, I believe he was going to make from Sippo, maybe, or Sapili or something like Mm. that. Some crazy tropical wood. Yeah. Yeah. Should be cool once it's done. Yeah. Should be expensive once it's done. Yeah. <laughs> I told him, I said, photograph it and show it to Chris Schwartz. Yes. <laughs> the the no. Rubo the Rubo Maven. The yeah. Rubo... Uh, Mr. Rubo. Yes. The Rubo King of the greater St. Paul area. St. Paul. I don't know. I don't Cincinnati, know. Where is I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyways. But he was a really nice guy. It was cool to meet a listener. And I also found out that 
Uh, so one day, my fr- this guy Joe called me, and he said, Matt, you need to get a dehumidifier for your shop. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And somehow he knew that I had been thinking about making a new tool cabinet, and I'd built the tool cabinet I have now, he he and I built together, and he gave me all the materials. I'm like, how does Joe know about that? So now I know, because this guy, Michael, takes uh, his phone over to Joe whenever we talk about Joe, and he plays it for him. So Joe gets to hear. Oh, so Joe has his own spy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So Joe has a spy. So, yeah. Nice. Yeah. He's a nice guy, though. So, hi, Michael. How are you? All right. Well. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Can we have some questions and actually (laughs) stay on topic for once? Yes. (laughs) All right. First one comes from Craig, and Craig wrote, I have a question about power. From what I can see, all of the big power tools like table saws, dust collectors, band saws, etc. top out at about 1 and 3 quarter horsepower for a 110 volt connection. To go above 2 horsepower, you have to get a 220 volt motor. If that's the case, needing 220 volt for those 2 horsepower motors, why is it that smaller power tools claim well over 2 horsepower, like routers and vacuums at 110 volts? So, oh, yeah, I have a shop vac. It's a six-horse shop vac. That's right. Sweet. It's got more horsepower than my car. Yes. So how do these small handheld power tools claim more horsepower than some of their bigger, well, beefier brethren? I think the philosopher Nietzsche had quite a bit to say about power. Maybe we should refer to oh, him. Oh, God. Crickets. <laughs> yeah. I actually referred to uh, Raleigh Johnson. Another well-known philosopher. Another well-known Raleigh philosopher. Johnson. Uh, and I'll let you guys chime in. I, I just wanted to get um, Raleigh's copious comments across yeah. he's written a dissertation by he, the way well actually <laughs> yes yeah, pretty much holy cow so here's raleigh's answer the whole deal with and i'll try and take this slowly to because there's a lot of information here the whole deal with horsepower ratings is an interesting exercise in marketing horsepower for electric motors is measured in watts 745.699 watts equal one horsepower so it's pretty easy to see what the real horsepower of a motor is by using a bit of math Wattage is derived by multiplying voltage times amperage. So, for example, let's say the motor you're interested in runs on 115 volts, and the manufacturer has 20 amps listed on the motor tag as maximum amp draw. 115 volts times 20 amps equals 2300 watts. Divide that by 746, and the result is 3.08 horsepower. That motor can develop a bit over 3 horsepower at, and here's the kicker, maximum amperage draw sustainable horsepower, but right at the limit of long-term motor life. Running at max amps for very long will create a lot of heat, and that's where something called duty rating comes into effect. And that's a whole new story. But duty rating is the amount of time a motor can run at max amps. So if the duty rating is 50%, then the motor can run 30 minutes out of an hour at max amps before the motor starts to incur damage. So now we often see outlandish horsepower claims on smaller electrical equipment, and that's where the interesting marketing comes in. A motor can produce quite a bit of horsepower for a very short period of time. So the manufacturers place a heavy load on the motor and measure the maximum horsepower achieved just before the motor goes up in smoke. This isn't sustainable horsepower. It's peak power. So this is why we see shop vacs that run on 115 volt power but claim to develop 6 horsepower. It's... I'm going to edit. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) It's BS. All right. The three horsepower developed from amps times volts is sustainable. So he's saying, yeah, you know, that shop vac, it can get up to six horsepower, but only for maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds or something before it just goes up in smoke and burns out. Wow, I'm kind of bummed. 
Yeah, you should be, Mike. Yeah. If we move it one step further and consider two hundred, this is that gets interesting. I, well, what, I, yeah, go ahead. Well, so one thing, Raleigh, if, unless I missed it, mm-hmm. the other thing that factors into horsepower is actually the efficiency of the motor. I don't think he mentioned that. True. Now, I wonder if what comes into play there, like things like these new brushless motors and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Motors are more no heat, less heat. Yeah. Right? So yeah, a motor can be more or less efficient, and that determines also its horsepower. Sure. And that's something it's difficult to know. But what? What? I mean, the last. Uh... Well, I just found this interesting. This isn't really necessary to answer um, Craig's question, but it's kind of interesting. If we if we move it one step further and consider two hundred and thirty volt power we can see where the efficiency of a better electrical supply comes in. To develop three horsepower with 230 volts, we only need 10 amps on each power leg. Remember, 230 volt is simply two 115 volt lines with a common neutral. The result is less line loss delivering the electricity to the motor, which results in a more accurate 10 amps reaching the motor with an increase in efficiency. This also means we can use smaller wire over longer distances without sacrificing power, blah, blah, blah. Um... So I guess I'm sure Raleigh's gonna be happy you elided the rest of his answer. That yeah. way. <laughs> blah 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 blah. How was your Christmas? Blah 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 blah. So it sounds like in short, amps are a better gauge of de- yes, determining the absolutely. power of a tool than yeah. this horsepower, which could be anything. Yeah, amperage is a better indicator of uh, true power because uh, it's con- it's a consistent uh, thing. It doesn't. Um, and if you look at like all the big is routers, is that the technical term a consistent thing? Yes, it is thing, a more consistent is okay. thing. If you look at uh, big routers like the ones they claim to be three, three and a quarter, yeah. or three and a half, or whatever, you'll see they're all fifteen amps. And if as you go down, you'll see that like the two and a quarters, those are more like a twelve amp. Uh, and then you know one and three quarter is going to be even less than that. So at least definitely with universal motors that run on 110, you know, you can look at amperage and that gives you a better idea of how powerful something is. And another thing that I learned, uh, when I was running the, uh, line for my, uh, my joiner, my new joiner, 12 inch monster jointer. That's right. Uh, that, um, on any given circuit, if it's a, you know, if it's dedicated or maybe any circuit that, the circuit needs to be rated for approximately 25% more amps than the biggest tool on it. For safety reasons. For safety reasons, yeah. right. So a 20-amp circuit, which those are more common in newer houses now, uh, are really – you can use a 15-amp tool on it. Okay. Uh, and if you have – you know, so there are some table saws in, out there and maybe some band saws that have like – they're rated at like 24 amps on 110 volts. Hmm. And and that's why it, with a two twenty line, you're usually drawing current from two twenty amp. Yeah, so the amp rating is going to be half be forty amps. So twenty. No, 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 no. It's, if it's twenty on one one 15, each leg, it would each leg would be ten on two thirty. No, I'm saying at the box, at the box, like when I you know when I wired my two twenty outlets, I wired it with a double circuit breaker. Yes, each side being twenty amps, twenty and twenty. It's a forty amp breaker. Um, that I don't know. That doesn't sound right to me, but I'm getting, yeah. out of, getting over my head. So then that, what I'm saying is then there's no problem running a 25 amp t- a table saw. It's drawing how many amps did you say? 25 or something? But no, no, not on a 110. Oh, on a 110? On a one, well, there are table saws rated at 20 to 24 amps on 110. On 110. 
Yes, okay. there are some that are, and uh, those are really. I mean, personally, I would think if it can be rewired, you'd rewire that and run it on two thirty. A lot of machines they say they can be wired for one ten or two twenty. Yes. Yeah. So that really depends on what your electrical service can handle. Right. Okay. Right. Right. All right. Um, and you can always be like Homer Simpson and re- change your name to Max Power. <laughs> that always helps with. Anyhow, whatever. <laughs> Go find that Simpsons episode. It's a good one. Um, so the next question comes from Linda, and Linda wrote, I have my own shop and am making my first workbench. I have a lot of eight-quarter oak, and I'd like to know if it's suitable for a bench top. I know maple's better and harder, but I have all this oak on hand. What's the deal? So oak for a bench top. Why not? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, you may use it for a bench top. <laughs> and how would how might we glue it up? Um. Well, if it's plain sawn oak, just like if you bought plain sawn maple boards, you'd probably want to rip them into whatever your ultimate thickness of the tabletop is and then glue them up on edge so you have a quarter sawn surface facing up. This is going to give you a more stable uh, bench top across its width. You're going to get less movement, probably, I'm guessing, less um, sort of cupping or warpage or twisting over the life of the bench as well. And if it's eight quarter uh, quarter sawn white oak, no, you may not use it for a bench yeah, top. Th- yes. <laughs> <laughs> you need to find some furniture to make out of that. Yeah. Well, yeah. what else can you What else can you use as far as um, wood, not talking like MDF or anything like that, but what are other suitable species and maybe not so suitable species? Well, the thing about a bench top uh, is, is that, one, I, personally, I believe you want it to be a, a light color because it will be more reflective of the ambient light, so you'll be able to see better on your bench top. Uh, you want something that is uh, a tight, closed grain wood, like maple or hickra. So or, no beech? Uh, beech would be okay. I mean, beech a lot of okay. benches are made out of beeches. I mean, not beech. Um, oh, boy, we had a conversation about this a while back. Ash. Ash. Ashes are. I mean, it's got open pores just like oak does, but that, you know, is maybe less critical. I would prefer to have a light-colored wood. Uh, And then, of course, you want a wood that is uh, strong, you know, that has great uh, strength in terms of its uh, rigidity or however. I'm sure there is a technical term for it, but I can't remember. Because you're going to pound the heck out of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you could even use, uh, you know, southern yellow pine. I made a bench out of southern yellow pine many years ago. Not white pine. Not white pine. Definitely not white pine, but southern yellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could make it out of uh, Doug fir would be okay. Uh, Doug fir, really? Yeah. yeah that's that's Doug, well, strong enough? Yeah. They use it to make houses, don't they? True. But they wouldn't use it to make houses if it wasn't but I strong. Never, well, what, yeah. They use drywall to make houses, too. <laughs> yeah. Wait a minute, Matt. No, but I mean, Doug fir, you can... I mean, for example, you can dent dug fur pretty easily. Yeah. You know, it's not a big deal. You can deal. ding it up. So what? Okay. Wabi-sabi. Right, Mike? That's wabi-sabi. Right. right. What is wabi-sabi? The patina of age. That's right. Is that a... Wait a minute. <laughs> is that a real word or are you yes. pulling yes, one over? Yes, it is. Wabi-sabi. Come yes. on. It's not only is it a word, it's a sort of a Japanese no, 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 philosophical no, no. take no, on It things. is sort of the melancholy um, at the recognition of the impermanence of life. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? About your impermanence of life, I'm going online on my iPhone. All right. So I'll keep talking about woods, yeah, you other keep suitable about woods. That. Ash would be a suitable wood. Soft maple, hard maple. Yeah. Um, I think just almost anything, if you can get it cheap. Yes. And it's not suitable for really nice furniture. Yes. Yeah. So I wouldn't use cherry. I wouldn't use walnut. I would not use any tropical woods. Sorry, Mike da- Michael Davis. Uh, mm, interesting. 
Wabi Sabi represents a comprehensive Japanese worldview or aesthetic centered on the acceptance of transience and imperfection. The aesthetic is sometimes described as one of beauty that is imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete. I should copy this and send it to my wife, and <laughs> perhaps、right. she'll view me in a better light. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, wabi sabi. I wabi learned sabi. something new. Cool. Yeah. Has to do with furniture, you know, because,、uh, yeah. All right. Anyways. Well, I say we move into our first segment of the day, and that is going to be all time favorite tool of all time for this、That's、week,、right. where we. Yeah, I just I don't have anything. I'm not feeling the whole you know where we gush over our blah 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 blah. I'm、yeah. just let's just get to it. Yeah, enough of this nonsense, Matt. Yes, speaking of Japan, stay sharp, Matt. Yes, what's the deal? My tool of the all-time favorite tool of the week this week last week、uh, is R is R my new sharpening stones, which were、uh, all the way from Japan. I bought them from a guy in Japan. Uh, wait, wait, I, yeah, <laughs> I did, uh, and, and uh, the shipping was very affordable. <laughs> Why, pray tell, did you have them shipped all the way from Japan? You couldn't find an importer here. No, you can't. It's so weird. They're、um, they won the tool test, the tool test that Chris Gochner did. Yeah, and I, you know, and Chris Gochner said, yeah, these are really good for A two. Steel. They did a fantastic job on A2 steel, and pretty much everything I have is A2 steel. I got some O1 steel and stuff like that, but not much. So、uh, I ordered them,、uh, and they are、uh, what's the name of them again?、Uh, Sigma Power. Sigma Power. Yes,、yeah, Sigma Power. Okay.、Um, and、uh, I got three stones, and actually, you get three. I got three stones, a、uh, diamond plate to flatten them with. And then also a cool little, you know,、uh, pond to put them on、hmm. and sharpen over. And what did this set、right. you back?、Uh, including the shipping, three hundred dollars. And it came with a diamond stone for flattening. So、yes. that's not that's not outrageous.、And、including it, the shipping from Japan, that's not outrageous. And a cabana boy to do the sharpening. <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually not.、Uh, in, given all that I got with it, the、yeah. flattening plate and all this other stuff, it's a very reasonable price for three sharpening stones. And what and, are the、uh, what are the grits?、Uh, there's a tw- I got a twelve hundred, a six thousand, and a thirteen thousand,、uh, and they really handle O A two steel very well. So what? Tell me,、um, I don't know if you want to talk about the water stones you own prior to that, but you were using a different brand of water stone. Yes. Do you notice a difference between what you were、yes. using and these guys? Yes, I had,、uh, and they were very good stones,、mm-hmm. Norton water stones, very good stones.、Uh, But these new ones,、uh, that as always, he'll be selling to me,、right. like his bandsaw <laughs> and his drill press. <laughs> Head such a sucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah.、Um, they cut faster,、hmm. and they polish the A2 steel the backs better.、Hmm. You know, I never had trouble polishing the bevel because it's such a small area. Right. But the backs always seem to get a little cloudy、uh, on the Norton stones. Uh, and on these new stones, they do not. They get boom mirror polish. The Norton stones you had, you had combination stones, combo as well. stones,、yep. and these are single. Grit, these are single, which are a little、stones. bit nicer. Yes, yeah, much nicer. Because when I, you know, I have my combo stone. One of them was the four four thousand eight thousand. Yeah, and when you're using the four thousand side, which you use before the eight thousand side, you get all kinds of detritus and. Crud on the eight thousand side, right? So then you got to go and clean it before you can use it, and、right. 
So these are, yeah, all yeah, it single. Does, it, it does take a lot of effort to reach over to the <clears throat> sink and splash some water it over does. it. does. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. in single grit stones, you have twice as much <laughs> surface to sharpen on before yes. you have to reflatten yeah, the stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And cool. you can also use the edges like you do, yes. right, uh, for chisels and whatnot. Oh, yep. Yankee thrift, Mike. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I never so, thought of that. Right. Nice. But then you just make your sharpening stone narrower. That's true, yeah. <laughs> well, that's mine anyways. Awesome, awesome sharpening stones. Su- what was it? Super Max Power? Sigma Power. Sigma Power. I love that name. That's great. They were they were the ones that got the one of the ones that got the best overall. I remember. Yeah. In the, in the, and they're really pretty too. Hmm. Um well, let's keep on this uh on this <laughs> whatever. <laughs> let's keep on this theme. Uh Mike Keeping on the sharpening bandwagon, yes. what's your new latest gadget? Well, coincidentally, yes. My favorite tool of the week is sharpening related. It's not sharpening stones. It has to do with sharpening stones. Um, okay. I'm not really, I would say, a gadget kind of a guy. I'm not like big on gadgetry. And this, Wait a minute. I think a hand plane counts as a gadget. No, I don't mean that. Okay. I don't know. I don't... I don't... I, I know what you mean. You're not a gadget guy. I understand what you're saying. Sort of like, saying. ooh, that's cool. I'm going to buy that in yeah. order to do kind of one kind of a thing. This thing almost falls into the realm of gadgetry, but I really like it. So um, it's certainly not a knock on it. Um, it is a basically, it's a blue plastic fishing tackle box made by Norton. Um, and it basically comes in two halves. And the upper half has a little water well in a triangular block where you can attach three water stones to it, and it suspends them above this this well. You can spin it from one grit to the next. So right there, it's like plastic, and the thing spins around, and and it looks like a tackle box. So I'm not all that impressed with it to to begin with, but I travel around a lot doing demos and teaching, and I wanted a little bit more portable sharpening system. Um, So Ed, you and I, we saw this thing in Tommy Mac's shop when we were there for a photo shoot, and... Like, well, that's kind of a cool solution for travel. Yeah. So I mounted my Norton water stones to this little triangular thing, filled it up with water. Um, and then there's a storage bin down below where you can put all your other stuff. Your honing um, guide, your yeah. whatever. And so I put my stones on there, and it worked great when I was teaching. And the funny thing was is I never actually ended up taking the stones out of the thing, and I ended up using the stones right there in my shop on a regular basis. And the thing I like about it is it just kind of contains the mess of sharpening a little bit more, especially when it comes to flattening the stones. Matt, I know you've got a sink in your shop. Yes. Which is awesome. I don't. I would have just like a big Rubbermaid sort of bin that I would do all my flattening in. I'd get this sludge in there, and it would get all sort of nasty and have to empty it out. Every couple months, but this basically because it's the stones are suspended over this little water well, I leave them right in place and I use my diamond plate and I flatten them right in place as opposed to taking them over to my bucket. And it just makes it a little bit nicer and more convenient. The downside that I thought was going to be a problem was that these stones are sort of clamped in place. And I like the single grit stones because I can flip them over and use both sides. Mm. So I thought, well, if they're clamped in place by these little screws, I'm never taking this thing out. This is going to be a problem. But I find that because it's so much easier to flatten, I'm not worried about having to flip it over and use the opposite side before flattening it. So um, it's a neat little thing. Uh, It wasn't that expensive. And um, I think you can fit other stones in there. I'm not sure. Um, Yeah, you can fit any number of them in there. Chris Gochner has two of these things. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, at least two. And I know, I think he has different sets in them. But I got two questions uh, for you about this thing. Yes. 
first uh, somehow the the stones are held in this ro- revol- rotating I know where you're going you have the question rotisserie. I was ask. Yes. yeah the rotisserie do they bite into the stone at all like leave little teeth marks I don't know there's little metal brackets the little plates that you screw and they do sort of bite into mm-hmm. the stone um but in terms of they're certainly haven't cracked or anything like that. I don't know if they've actually left a little line or not. I actually haven't taken the stones back out since I put them in. God so forbid. I might be in for a rude <laughs> surprise. Does, had Chris had problems with that? No, 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 no. Okay. No, I, no, I was just curious. And then the second question is I did notice this when I saw them at Chris's shop. Um, the water level is only going to be so high in there. Yeah. And – so I don't – I mean some modern man-made ceramic stones don't really need to be soaked that much. No. Some – like the Shaftons, they say don't soak them. But the Nortons – see, my Nortons, I would be soaking the 1,000 uh, and 4,000 grit yes. definitely before I use them. But can you soak two stones at once? Yeah, that's the cool thing is you have one stone flat on top. The other two are sort of at an angle on the bottom. So like a bit bop, 60 degree angle or yeah. something. So yeah. So basically exactly the same thing. I don't – soak my 8,000 grit stone. So that's always stored up. Yeah. And the 1,000, 4,000 are stowed down so that they are in contact with the water. Not fully submerged, but they don't have to be because they'll wick they the absorb, moisture yeah. through it. So it is a convenient way to soak two out of three stones, assuming you only need to soak two out of three yeah, stones. Yeah, I guess the, the, the corollary to this question would be some stones uh, are meant to be soaked, but not soaked permanently. So I guess I wonder if you have to pour out the water on a regular – you know, depending on your stone, be something to think about. Right. Like, for instance, my Norton 8000 grit stone, they say you don't need to soak it. I always did because I like to keep all my stones in the same place. Mm-hmm. So that's a situation where you theoretically aren't supposed to soak it, but it didn't hurt it. Whereas other stones, you're not supposed to soak them. So definitely check with your specific stone. But Yeah, my, I uh, on this can – I, can, can I ask a single question? Just one question, really? Matt, please. Ah, just one. So. All right, all right. Oh, God. No, I was just really curious. When you're sharpening on that thing, because yes. it has a revolving... Yes. Yes. Is it stable enough when you're, you know, say, polishing well, the back of something? It must have positive stops on it. Yes. I mean, yeah, I like a really, uh, you know, a really rock-solid base for sharpening, because any rocking in the stone, and you could sort of mess up your bevel, there is a, a little bit of a sort of jiggle back and forth, but not enough to sort of bother me when I'm sharpening, either flattening the bevels or the backs. But when you rotate, does it have positive detents? Yes, there are. Yeah. yeah. But just the, you know, the whole mechanism, there's just a little bit of a movement, but um, it's not a negative thing. Yeah. I was going to say about my water stones, they appear not to want to be soaked at all. Hmm. How do they, how is that they appear how not they, to want to How do they express that? <laughs> do they say that? I mean, yes. Yeah, well, I filled up my sink with mm-hmm. nice warm water so my hands wouldn't get cold. And I put them in there and no air bubbles, hmm. you know. So it was like, well, they must not be absorbing water because they're oh, not forcing out air. That's really interesting. So when you use them, I mean, for me, the huh. way I, I know that my stones haven't been soaked enough is that I'll squirt them with a little spritz of water before I soak in. It'll more. soak in like, right. boom, it'll be dry in a second. Do you experience that or are they pretty well? Well, you know, I, I did on the 1000 grit stone, I believe I have experienced that. I'm, I've been meaning to email the proprietor of the store mm-hmm. in, in Japan where I bought it from. I, I mean, I guess I can just say the name. It's the only place I know to get them in America. Is, uh, it's uh, toolsfromjapan.com. Hmm. 
a guy named Stuart. Uh, I think he's an American, but he might be Australian or something. Hmm. Uh, owns it hmm. and sells. But um, yeah, I did, yeah. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. Hmm. Anyways, hmm. 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 <laughs> all right. Uh, mine. Yeah. What's yours, Ed? Earth shattering. All right. Cast all... iron legs. Oh hmm. boy. Yeah. I, so I, I got I was at a flea market. I should back up. My when I bought my house, there was an old. Um, really long homemade workbench along one wall and the legs were old cat recycled cast iron legs and then there was a bunch of like two bites laid out across and it was a great work surface you know just for banging away at whatever um and i've since replaced it with um you know a couple layers of mdf screwed together and then some edging and some real nice flat work surface over the legs and i was at a flea market a couple weeks ago and i stumbled across another set of cast iron legs for like 10 bucks hmm. And I brought them home because I needed one more long work surface against another wall. And I'm in the process of uh, cleaning them up. And uh, I'm going to do something that I've done before with cast iron legs is I'm going to coat them with some boiled linseed oil. And then maybe even a little bit of wax. It gives them like a nice little patina. Yeah. Once you get all the rust off and buffed off and whatnot. But these cast iron legs are awesome when I find them. And I find them a lot um, because you like have an instant work surface like in within an hour. You know, you just yeah. screw together some MDF screw it to these legs and it's super heavy the legs are each leg like on one of my benches utility benches one each leg is like 40 pounds you know they're solid uh, this is interesting this is uh because um you know i've got furniture in that gallery uh, uh that involves upcycled furniture yep. you know the, right. and cast iron legs are pretty big right yeah. now uh in in furniture hmm. And the guy that – and I just bought some from the guy that owns the store uh, to build a, a, a like a kitchen island with. He said that – like on eBay, he said he's been having trouble finding cast iron legs. Now, these might be different than what you're looking mm -hmm. for, but for less than like 400 bucks. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, now, I'll tell you something about it. I mean, these are like old tool stands mine are and too. such. Um, and it's, it's interesting that you mentioned this. Well, they weren't tool stands. They were two separate independent leg ends. Yeah. But – what was interesting was that I, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be quick, I don't mean to digress, but um, my we have an electrician who does work for us from time to time, and the guy called me up and he said, hey, I remember you have, because I had another set, you had a, another set in the basement from when we bought the house, and he said, oh, I remember you had those old cast iron legs, and I'm building a new restaurant, and I want to make a big central table in the middle of the eating space, and I'd like to buy them off you, and I said, well, um, would you trade some work, because I needed some electrical work done, and I traded him for a few hundred dollars worth of electrical work yeah and i just gave them these legs so i apparently according to what you're saying it was a good deal yeah they're pretty valuable depending on I, you know I, I guess i'd have to see the ones you've been finding because yeah. i'd like to find if you're finding them you know they're you I, get me some the ones that i found aren't they're they're not um i gave the electrician the ones that were a little more nicer looking yeah these are really you know they're not particularly fancy looking all right but well, um, we can talk about that later. that's interesting yeah um well anyhow uh without further ado uh, I'm going on to the next question, and that comes from Chris. And Chris writes, Hello, guys. I'm working on kitchen cabinets, and I have a question about drawer design. Some of the lower drawers uh, in my layout are quite large, where the front would require a glue-up. I've seen some designs where large fronts are made in a frame and panel style, while other smaller drawers are solid, flat front. At what point in size would a frame and panel be a good option versus a glued-up flat panel? Or is it just design preference? So... Gentlemen, I would say, well, Mike, you answer. All right. 
<clears throat> Chris? And then I'll chime in. It's a good question. Actually, I ran into this problem when I was doing my uh, kitchen a few years back. Um, and for me, what I ended up doing exactly what you said. All my drawer boxes were um, half-inch Baltic birch ply with uh, applied drawer fronts. And for the, the top drawer, which was maybe about six inches high, I went with a solid stock. All the, the whole kitchen was painted white, so I went with poplar drawer fronts there. And then everything below that, so ranging from you know 10 to 12 or 13 inches high, I just used the same setup that I used for my frame and panel doors uh, in the rest of the kitchen and just made basically little tiny doors that attached to the um, to the Baltic birch uh, drawer boxes. And it worked out really well. And when I did it, I was thinking, is this going to be like really weird having these frame and panel um, sort of drawer fronts below and then a solid one above? And it doesn't bother me at all. I think it looks fine, and I've seen it uh, used quite a bit. Um, so I think if you have a traditional style kitchen, uh, it's I think that's fine. Um, if you have a more contemporary kitchen where you might have flat panel doors, maybe veneered plywood with edging, then I would probably just go flat veneered uh, edge banded plywood for all of the drawers if you want more of a sort of a contemporary or or sort of a Euro style look. But um, yeah, so I just went solid uh, for just the top drawer and the rest uh, got the little framing panel look. It looks pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know if there is a size. I mean, a drawer, I don't know if a drawer, there's going to be a drawer in your kitchen that's so big that you have to do frame and panel. I think it's more of just a design choice. I mean, yeah. So, yeah, it's not, you don't, there's not going to be one that's so big that you need frame and panel. I, all of the, I remade, I made new drawers and doors for all the cabinets in my kitchen and made them all inset where mm -hmm. they used to be overlay. Um, and uh, all of them are just solid panels. Uh, so they don't look as nice as Mike's. Okay. I think they look quite nice. <laughs> all right. Well, there you go. Uh, moving on, another question from Dominic. And Dominic wrote, I have just completed bending forms for a project I'll be, I will be beginning soon, a bow-arm Morris chair. And I was wondering if the glue I select will affect the amount of springback. I'll be laminating cherry and have researched the anticipated springback to about 3 sixteenths to a quarter inch. I was originally going to use tight bond glue, but have also considered polyurethane-based glues based on information regarding flexibility of poly glues versus yellow. Does it really matter? Is a more rigid glue line preferable in this application? Thanks. Love you guys. Now, we, we should probably explain spring back really quickly for those folks who aren't familiar with that term. So uh, in a bow arm Morris, you have a bowed arm, right? And it, several plies get glued together over a form, and they get clamped into place. The glue dries. You take it off, and there's a certain amount of spring back. Well, yeah. You, right, you, where that bowed. You bend it to a particular radius, let's say 10 and yeah. a half inches. And then when you take it off of the form after the glue's dried, Boing. it's going to open up to something bigger than 10 and yeah, a half inches. A little bit bigger. Yeah. Um, in a bow-arm Morris chair, uh, I, one, I would not use polyurethane glue. It's an absolute mess. That's like usually. Gorilla Glue yeah. is a polyurethane glue, if anybody's familiar with how that stuff Right. Works. I would not use that. I would either use tight bond or if I were to use something other than that, I would use... Uh, I never get the. I can never remember the name of it. I think it's called Pro Glue. It's a. Uh, it's like Unibond. What's that stuff made from again? Urea. Uh, it's a urea formaldehyde yeah. glue, but it's not as. What'd you uh, call it? Pro. Pro Glue. Yeah. They sell it at Woodcraft and uh, places like that. Um, you just mix it with water, 
and it spreads easy, and it has a it creates a rigid glue line, so it doesn't have spring back. Uh, so that's probably what I would use. In What's this the case. open time on that? Is it a little bit more working time than a yellow glue? It, you do have more working time okay. than yellow glue. Yeah, and it's uh, it's also brownish in color. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. Pro glue. Yeah, I was just looking it up for readers. It's manufactured by a company called Vacuclamp. Yes. So if you go to www.vac-u-clamp.com, you can find hmm. it. That's good stuff. It's it creates a it's it's really a rigid, harder glue line than yellow, say yellow glue or right. white glue. Now, there's other factors involved in springback other than the glue in terms of just the thickness applied. Doesn't that affect the amount of springback you'll get? Yeah. So if you're making, a, if you want to minimize springback, what you can always do is have more thinner plies. Okay. And so the the fewer the th and thicker the plies are, the more spring back you're going to have. Right. So with a bow arm Morris chair, the arm might be like an inch thick. Yeah. You could have eight plies there easily, um, and that would create less spring back than four plies. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing I always keep in mind because a lot of times people say, "Well, how how are you using yellow glue there?" Isn't the springback going to be a problem, or aren't you worried about creep? Because another thing that yellow glue has is called creep, and that or cold creep, some people yes. call it. And that's when because it, it's it, it's sort of flexible, the glue is, so the plies can move a little bit in relation to one another after the glue is dried, and causing them to straighten out a little bit. Yeah, causing right. The, yeah, that's actually a good thing for cross grain joinery like mortise and tenon joints yes. and a you know table leg to apron. Where technically it's a cross grain joint, and there that creep is kind of a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in say like a, on the Bowfront Cadman I made that's in the current issue, I glued up all that stuff with uh, Titebond three, mm -hmm. and it's not an issue uh, for the drawer fronts, which are uh, uh, bent bent laminations, because those drawer fronts are going to get pegged into shape, so to speak, uh, through the sides of the drawers. So sure. th so they're locked by uh, a mechanical fastener uh, either side. So they're not going to spring. They're not going to creep. They're going to be fine. Right. And like on this Morris chair arm, if it's locked into those through tenons on the leg posts, that's really going to, even if it springs back a little bit, yeah. you're going to be able to work it back into shape, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. But the other thing about the bow arm Morris chair, which you can do is you make both of your arms and they have spring back. Well, you let them have their spring back. It's going to be really close. Mm -hmm. And then you use the arm afterwards to lay out the shoulders for those oh, okay. curved, uh, the curved uh, shoulders at the top, the okay. legs. And then it doesn't really matter. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. So you're sort of designing around the curve you get, yeah. even if it's not quite matching the form. Yeah, yeah. And that's, cool. I mean, that stuff's all important with solid wood that has internal tensions. The front, the doors of that cabinet I just made, for example, it's not an issue because there aren't, there, there's no tension on that flexible plywood and veneer. Okay. So you don't have to worry about spring back. And that stuff doesn't spring back at all. Hmm. I mean, it's, you know, it stays flat. It stays to the curve. All right. Well, Matt, yes. keep your vocal cords warmed up because right. our next segment of the day is going to be uh, looking back at uh, the last episode of Shop Talk Live's a little mini segment on the business of woodworking. And to refresh uh, listeners' memories, uh, on the last podcast, Sean had written in to say, I'd like to ask if you guys could do a segment on doing commission work on the side. How do you get started? How did Mike set up his website? I know Matt does work on the side, too. I'm curious about how people start out doing this and actually charging for pieces. I'm not looking for a cut-and-dry answer, but I think it would make for some interesting pod. Uh, so... 
Mike spoke about this topic a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure he was accurate episode. on that count. On what? Interesting, Interesting pod. pod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know this is a pretty common um, common theme among hobbyist woodworkers. I think just about any hobbyist woodworker dreams yeah. of selling stuff. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Right. You know? Uh, so uh, what's your what's your take on all this? Um, well, I, what have your experiences been? Well, so I, I probably I can give you experience from two different perspectives. I think one is of, from someone who's trying to make and sell furniture, uh, and also the perspective of a fine woodworking editor who talks to professional furniture makers about this very issue all the time. Because usually when I go to someone's shop, you go out to lunch, you need stuff to talk about. Normally, I, end up, I like to talk to them about selling furniture and see what their take is on it. Um, so the first thing is if you want to sell furniture on commission, that means you've, you've got to market yourself. You've got to find customers somehow. Now, I don't – Mike, I don't remember how you got started in doing that, but the, what what I did. My mom buys all my furniture. Your mom buys it all. <laughs> <laughs> she has like fourteen storage uh, garages yes. in California. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, <laughs> Storage Wars has been to her her, her garages like four times. Yeah, they bought all the contents for fifty bucks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I did was. Uh, um, my we just in town. My wife knew a couple that owned uh, some stores that were they sold furniture and stuff, and uh, they were going to have spaces for rent in their shop where artists could come and sell things. So I went and I showed uh, the wife my photos, and she thought that they were probably too nice for the store that she had at the time. Oh, that's how she got you out the door. Yeah, uh, that's oh, what she told much me. Too nice, much yeah. too nice yeah. for us. So. Uh, she, uh, she that, uh, yeah, I fell for that. Damn. Uh, but she showed the photos to her husband, who was about to open up a gallery. Yeah. Uh, in a old factory, mm-hmm. and they invited me to come down and have a spot in the gallery. So I made some furniture for the gallery and put it in there. Now I have not sold any of the furniture I made for the gallery. Mm-hmm. However, I have gotten commissions through the gallery. Mm-hmm. Uh, this gallery is set up a little different than most galleries. Um, but so people come in, they're looking for some type of furniture and they look at what's in the gallery and they, maybe they don't see what they want, but they describe it to the owners and they say in both case, in, in the cases that have come in through there, they've said, well, we know exactly who should build that for you. It's Matt. And so they'll send that person my way. And that's how I've been getting commissions is through that gallery. Are you giving the gallery a – No. A, okay. No Just cut. out of curiosity. Because I rent the space. Okay. So they're making money off me renting the space. Normally at a gallery, you put a piece in there, you sell it. They get a, a right. 30 or 40%. Right. But it doesn't cost you anything to have your Correct. work in the gallery. Yeah. Until yeah. they sell something. Until they sell it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I pay to have that space, and then I get to keep all the money from the commission. Um and for me, that's all I need right now. I don't need a bunch of commissions because I mostly just do it, like I said in the past, partially to buy tools, yeah. uh, just to sort of do stuff like that. So it's just for fun. Uh, if you really want to start selling furniture, the thing you got to learn how to do is market because like Dan Chafin uh, – in Louisville, who's published in the who we've had in the magazine a couple of times, you know they spend huge amounts of times of marketing. He and his business partner, his business partner is pretty much in charge of marketing. Mm-hmm. That's what he does almost full time is market the company. Seems like you also have to learn how to build furniture really efficiently and quickly. 
You have I mean, to be, yes, yeah, that matters. Um, but one thing that doesn't matter mm-hmm. in succeeding or failing as a furniture maker is how good of a furniture maker you are. That it does is, not matter. You know, yeah. In the grand scheme of things. Right. Yeah. A lot of really good furniture yeah. makers never make yeah, it. It's a little depressing to think in those terms, but I think you're right. I think marketing is probably the primary skill. Yes. I also think design is hugely yes. important um, because if you think about how many people can cut a mortise and tenon joint, a lot. Yep. And how many pieces of furniture actually need mortise and tenon joints versus biscuits or dominoes? Eh, you know, so I think that, you know, the if what you're trying to sell is this truly handcrafted piece with a lot of hours going into the craftsmanship and joinery and the fact you're using hand planes instead of a random orbit sander, it's really hard to sort of monetize that that effort. Yeah. And the other thing is, speaking about design, there's, I know of a lot of people who... By the way, I, I market myself exactly as the guy with all the craftsmanship <laughs> and time put into a piece of furniture. But so. you're doing it much like Matt. It's kind of more out of – for the joy of it. You're not basing your living off of just building furniture. If you were, I don't think you'd be marketing yourself that. Or maybe you would. Well, I don't know. That's but. correct. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, there's two ways to go. You either try to build what you think people want or you start by building what you yeah. want. And then if people want what you want to build, then fine. That's the the advice I got from my friend Joe Mazurik, uh, my friend Joe Mazurik, uh, is, yeah. What did my cousin tell you? Yeah, is uh, to uh, don't attempt to sell what you make. Make what you sell. So, in other words, don't make stuff and hope that you're going to sell it. Mm-hmm. Sell something and then make it. So that's what you want to do so it's that's a, a bit of in other words don't make a bunch of stuff on spec and hope that you're going to sell it because that that's just probably not going to happen what you want to do is try to get the commission first and then make it well i think it's it's sort of a catch 22 because i think let's say if you don't have a portfolio well, if that, you don't yeah, have anything that you've made you have to have a portfolio sure then the problem is people are going to come to you with a pottery barn catalog and say can you make this for me and even if you do get a sale, something like that, you you end up making things that are just of a design that are really not what you want to be doing. That's so. right. Yeah. I mean, Joe makes reproduction furniture. Uh, so in some way, that's taken care of because the people that come to him want that style. Right. But you're right. Uh, you want to uh, you want to have your own style. You definitely do because you don't want to build reproduction stuff from Pottery Barn because right. it's not worth reproducing. It's, it's hard to uh, – Dare you, sir? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to make my a, home? make a profit trying to somehow um, compete against the um, the right. efficiencies of production in something like that. Yeah, and so something else I've learned, uh, and I learned this from talking to some of the more successful authors in the magazine, uh, is that, and I think woodworkers in general have a problem with this pricing their work. Mm, yes, here's how you price your work: What do you want to be paid for it? That's all that matters. Yes. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how many hours you put into it. Screw that. You know? Right. It doesn't matter if I put 100 hours or 10 hours into it. What matters is what I want to get paid. And I want to get paid something that makes my time worthwhile. So even though I know how much I have in materials, how much time I put into it, and I also know how much my expertise is worth, how much my ability to design is worth, my ability to finish is worth, and all that gets factored into it. And then I think, well... How much do I want to get paid? And that's the what determines the price that I give to the client. And 
you know, you may get turned down some, but here's how you handle that. You know, I recently had some people come to me wanting to make two coffee tables, and they described to me what they wanted. I designed a couple of – gave them a couple of different options. They picked a design. I did the drawings, some basic drawings, gave them a price, and they said, well, that's too much. And I said, okay, that's fine. I can't make those tables for you. Tell me how much you want to spend, and I'll show you something I can make for you. Right. And so uh, – so I still got, I got the clients, and I'm not going to make the table that they initially wanted, but I'm going to make something that will make them happy, and I'll still make money on it. So, you know, and you got to – yeah, you can't think about how much time did I put into it and just how much materials and then multiply it times two. You can't do that. Right. Or you can't worry about – it's really easy to stress out and say, oh, how much can I charge for this and still have the client want to – buy it. Right. You know, this notion of, oh, I don't want to lose this sale. But to your point, if getting the sale means undervaluing your work and in essence losing money making it, then that's not really moving you forward right. unless you're just looking for an excuse to make some furniture. I mentioned last week that or last month that um, um, my early commissions were really just finding someone to pay for materials so I can make something. Yeah. And so I think if that's what your your goal is, is to make some nice pieces that interest you and, and work with some nice wood that you don't have the money to fork out, then, you know. I mean, something like that would be fine for family and friends, I think. Exactly. I would right. never do that for someone I didn't know. Right. Yeah. All right. All that's right. That's it. Well, prepare yourselves for the next question. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So guys knock Oti Peng explosion roar. Klingon translation. You guys rock like a photon torpedo explosion. What? Yes. Steve <laughs> wrote that in. Steve, apparently, I'm I'm guessing by the fact that it has, you know, this fake Klingon language and then the uh, word guys you know, and the word explosion. Real. He must have looked this up. There must be a, a website for, you know, like you enter in something in English and it translates it into Klingon. I thought you were um, fluent in Klingon. You can do that actually on, I, I think Google Translate does that. Are you serious? Yeah, it translates it into Klingon. Awesome. awesome. Uh, anyhow, so Steve wrote, my next tool purchase is going to be a miter saw, even though I could get a lot of use from a bandsaw. I understand the difference between 10 and 12 inches, but what should I consider before deciding between a compound, double compound, or sliding miter saw? So... How, do, how does he make this decision as to what what type of miter saw to, per, to put his saw bucks behind? Uh, that's a good question. I think it depends on the type of work that you want to be doing. I think your two basic choices are uh, probably a 12-inch um, miter saw, which just basically chops down in a single motion, or maybe a 10-inch sliding compound miter saw. Um, they both have different capacities. So the 12-inch saw is going to give you a bigger height capacity. So if you're doing, say, a lot of trim work and you're doing crown molding by supporting it at 45 degrees against your fence and making a cut, and you need that really high clearance or baseboard moldings, that sort of stuff, um, that's going to serve you really well. On the other hand, if you're doing a lot of lumber and cross-cutting and stuff, the 10-inch slider, even with the smaller diameter blade, is going to give you a much wider cross-cut clearance. Um, the second thing to consider is the way the two types of saws cut. This the regular miter saw, as it comes down into the wood, a lot of that blade is in contact with the wood at once. I mean, you're cutting you know, upwards of six inches of blade is into a piece of stock on a wide cut. 
there's um, a lot of torque on that blade, and I find I have a 12-inch uh, miter saw, and I get enough blade flex from that that I don't really depend on that for furniture quality cuts. Trim work, no problem. Whereas a 10-inch slider, the way you pull it out and push it through the cut, it cuts in a similar fashion to the table saw, where you're really only cutting maybe inch, inch plus um, at a time, and I think you get a much cleaner cut that way. Uh, you're going to pay more for a slider than you are a regular um, chop saw. And in addition, a slider, unless it's a really expensive one with like articulated arms or the little um, telescoping arms, um, it's going to stick out from the wall a lot further than a regular chop saw. So space is another consideration. Okay. Sounds Since good. A pretty rocking answer. Um, are you going to read alarm saw? Okay. <laughs> or step back to 1985. Hey, hey, hey. Um, Okay, next question comes from Adam, and Adam writes, I have been watching Mike Pekovich's video workshop on building an arts and crafts glass front cabinet. Cool. I've never used shellac, but I'm about to dive into it. In the video, Mike says he dials in the mixture of alcohol and shellac as he starts. Once you get dialed in, do you have to worry about having enough to do the whole cabinet, or do you not need to worry with shellac when matching color between batches as you would with a stain? Also, is there a rule of thumb for what color shellac to use for various woods? I noticed he used garnet for a specific color reason. Are there times where you wouldn't use shellac? So let's um, let's start from the beginning about this idea of mixing in batches, and and you know what happens in a project where you know you you mix up a batch and maybe you get three quarters done with the project, and oh no, I ran out. If you mix another batch, is the color going to totally be off? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, really, color-wise, you don't have to worry about it because you're mixing up from the same uh, dry flake source anyway. So regardless of how many batches you make out of a bag of shellac flakes, you're, it's going to have a consistent color. Um, what I typically like to do, just to save time mixing, because there is some time where you have to wait for the flakes to dissolve in alcohol, um, before you can use it. And rather having to sit down and wait for a half hour or a couple hours every time you need a new batch is I'll make up a, a really, really heavy batch and just continue to put that into a new container and dilute that with alcohol. So really when I do multiple batches, it, really what I'm doing is I'm pulling multiple times from a real heavy source and just replenishing my little shellac bottle there. So mm. in that sense, it's really the same batch. But there isn't that same color variation. And certainly the color you're imparting with shellac is pretty subtle compared to dyes and stains where it really matters. But um, Well, what about, what about the different colors of shellac and, and um, you know, which colors you use for which types of woods and, and whatnot, as he, uh, as he states? I typically, and I think I, I'm sort of uh, of the same philosophy as Matt, where I don't really normally import, impart a lot of color with shellac. In this case, where I was fuming white oak, it gives it sort of a greenish, cool cast. I used a garnet shellac, which is about the darkest shellac there is, uh, to sort of warm that up a little bit. Other okay. than that, I, I tend to be a little more subtle. For the most part, I use blonde shellac, which, which is maybe warming things up a little bit but not really imparting a lot of color. Certain things like walnut, which can get a little bit cool, I think benefits from like a orange shellac as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, it would depend on the wood. Yep. Like cherry, I never use any color shellacs over cherry. I just, I'm one of the people that- They don't need it. I'm, I'm willing to wait a year for my cherry yeah. to, yes. to color and look, have that really nice, beautiful patina. Uh, walnut, it, it would depend uh, if it were some uh, steamed, 
walnut from a lumber yard, I probably would like Mike want to add a colored shellac to it to warm it up a little bit. Or, you know, there's other ways to do that, like walnut husk stain or something like that. But um, it would you, depend you on the wood. remind folks about the whole steaming. Pro- I know we've talked about it before, but steamed with walnut. walnut yeah. yeah, with walnut, when it's, uh, when it's um, pro- you know, milled at a, in a, at a big, uh, pace or vast quantities of it, and they're going to sell it for flooring or for millwork. The people who are buying it want to get the, uh, as big a yield as possible. And walnut has a pretty sizable sap wood on it, right? And really dramatic color changes. Yeah. Yeah. So what they do is they steam it uh, at some point in the process to even out the color, and that just kind of makes it all kind of gray, little, little gray green kind of. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, if you don't steam walnut, yeah, it's got a beautiful chocolate color. You can find blues and creams and greens yeah. and purples. Yeah. It's fantastic. All right. Well, here we go. Prepare yourselves yet again. We get lots <laughs> of comments on our page in the iTunes store as well as through email. And every week, we like to acknowledge the folks who leave kind words of encouragement and maybe or not so kind. maybe not so kind words of discouragement. First this week, a little bad news. From one-star commenter, WoodButcher999, comes a bit of a beating. Quote, what I listen to when I want to sleep. This is the worst woodworking podcast I have ever listened to. Their unorganized conversations and long-winded ramblings lead to a very boring conversation. They often get off topic. I wouldn't disagree with that necessarily and most of the show isn't even woodworking related but about the host's personal lives i think that's patently well, false sorry wood butcher 999 <laughs> if i had to vent about my recent divorce damn it <laughs> skip this podcast and go listen to wood talk now gentlemen right. he, he should take his own advice i, mean, I have how many times has he listened to it if he doesn't wood like it talk wood talk <laughs> i have some growing suspicions that this commenter is in fact Mark Spagnuolo at Wood Talk. <laughs> totally <laughs> kidding. I actually have a good relationship with Mark, and he's helped me out blog related, in blog-related issues a couple of times. I'm just joking. We're friends with those guys. And that is a good podcast. Give it a listen. Um, but anyhow, um, Mark, I am writing you an email right now to find out if this was you. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, so that's that's our, our brow beating. We, we always read these when we get them because there's always, a, there's always something to learn from criticism. Um, so the next comment comes from Wood Papa, and Wood Papa wrote, I only recently started listening to the podcast, so I'm playing catch-up. I'm up to episode 15 so far and loving each one. It's a great way to pass the time when driving, flying, and while in the shop doing boring stuff like sanding and finishing. Love the tips and discussion. They are honest and genuine, not scripted. Keep it up. Well, 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 <laughs> yeah. Wood Butcher 999. <laughs> uh, it's the, uh, so. And finally from S. Connor 1111. One, love the podcast. Glad you reduced the sound effects. Love the new mics. Wow, he's still catching up. I'm still, oh, there you go. I'm still catching up on them. I'm only on episode 17. What have I been missing all this time? Makes my commute more pleasant and educational. Keep up the good work. Signed, Matt. Oh, no, yeah. no. Signed, Matt's mom. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on January 24th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Sorry, Wood Butcher 999, <laughs> if I had to 
bent about my recent divorce, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> 